Today we are looking at chapter 3 of a book in the Bible called How, or at least it was originally named How in Hebrew, it's Lamentations. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to that, that'd be great. Lamentations chapter 3. Um, this is our third part in the series, we've got two more chapters to go. Up until now, I'm going to be pretty honest with you guys, it's been pretty bleak. It's a pretty bleak um, book in the Bible. I think it's ignored often because of that. I've th- said the last two weeks, it gets ignored a lot because it's quite heavy. It's quite um, sad. It's quite depressing. It's a lament for crying out loud. So it's always going to be um, kind of depressing. And so um, there are three theologies that really come out of this book, which are quite important theologies in life, really. You start with a theology of pain. And in these poems, it's five separate poems. Four of the five poems are acrostic, it's an A to Z, or in their language, Hebrew, after Tef, which is actually 22 letters, not the same as our alphabet, which is why in the first chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5, you have 22 verses, because each verse starts with a letter of the alphabet and goes all the way through, um, which is important. We looked at that and we pointed out the reason that's important is because although a lot of stuff in here is sounds really painful and a lot of pain's coming out, it's not an outburst. So it's not a guy that's overwhelmed with his grief and just chucking out lyrics of um, pain and suffering. It's really calculated, it's really thought through. Um, And this particular chapter today is unique. Not because it abandons the the, the acrostic scheme, it doesn't abandon it, it still keeps it, but it changes it slightly. If you notice, there are 66 verses in this chapter as opposed to 22. Now, there's an ancient story passed down by the rabbis, which I like for this, um, because every other chapter in this book is 22 verses, it's after taf. Now this keeps after taf, but what it does is, each letter of the alphabet it uses three times. Three times. And the only reason that the rabbis has suggested generation to generation for this is unlike what I've suggested to you guys over the previous two chapters is, they have said that this book was written by Jeremiah and the first two chapters were actually written before the Babylonian dispersion. This is what the rabbis say. They've said it was written before the the Babylonian dispersion as prophecy and it was handed to the king, which I think was Yochayim at the time, probably pronounced that wrong, handed to him the first two chapters by Jeremiah's understudy. The king read the first chapter, didn't really comment, wasn't too happy. But then the second chapter, he got about as far as what we would say verse 5, where the blame and the pictures, the political landscape, and the leaders and the rulers being to blame for the dispersion. And he didn't read the rest of the chapter. He just took it and he threw it straight in the fire and burned it all up, which actually is upon cue for me to chuck another log in to keep us warm this morning. But yeah, that's what he did. He took the manuscript, just like that log, done, dusted. And he did that because he was saying, that's not going to come to pass, that's not real, that's not God, God's not saying that. And so what Jeremiah does is he rewrites chapter one, this is what the rabbis say, rewrites chapter two, and then he moves on to the next three chapters which he's writing, And in the third chapter, he's saying, you're not saying it's going to happen? Well, I'm going to say everything three times over with each letter because this is going down and this is how it's going to be. And then if we bear in mind Jeremiah being the author, which some scholars have debated, um, but the rabbis tend to embrace that. And as far back as we can go, they tend to 
not debate that. It's only recent scholars that really have that discussion. So in chapter 3, it starts off this way. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. So all the other prophets have given false prophecy. They've all said, no, it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. There's going to be a boom in the economy. It's going to be awesome. And Jeremiah's like, I am the man who has seen affliction. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. I love that verse because that's technically the definition of darkness, (laughs) the absence of light. He, but he's saying it is so bleak. It's like we had this expression in our, our day where we say like, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. I don't see a way out of this. I don't see any hope going forward. It is just pitch black. It is really bleak. And then he says, surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Now that particular line, the dead of long ago, isn't just talking about the dead of long ago. It's talking about people being like in Sheol. It's talking about the eternally damned. He's saying what I've gone through, the pain, the suffering that we've gone through, he's, he's connecting himself, associating himself with the eternally damned, those in Sheol that are dead and are separated from God eternally. So pretty heavy loaded imagery. He has walled me about so I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. He's weighed me down with heavy chains. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He's given this picture. So it's bleak, it's black, it's dark. There is no light. And so because there is no light, it's kind of like a a descriptive of him kind of feeling around, trying to feel what his environment is because he can't see. And he's feeling these blocked up stones that are stopping him from getting through. And he uses that to talk about and describe his prayer. Like he's in a room and it's just hitting the wall. It's just hitting the stones. It's not going anywhere. And I don't know about you guys, but there have been some times in my life where things seemed really dark seem really bleak, seem like there's no hope going forward. And sometimes when you're praying and you're praying and you're praying, it just feels like there is no one hearing you. That literally the things you're saying are just bouncing off the wall back into your face. And this is one of the greatest prophets of God kind of going through this kind of a time, which means it's okay for us to have those days. It's cool. There's room for that. It happens in life. And so this prophet is describing this time and he's saying it feels as if God has put a blockage there. Now, as I've read the first part of this, um, in my life right now, I can totally identify with this. All the way through the first few chapters, um, he has spoken about God in the, in the second chapter like he is an enemy. He keeps talking about God being like an enemy. Even when he talked about in the other chapters about a bow being bent against him, it's the language he uses is loaded in Hebrew. It's like God's taken his promise, the rainbow, and bent it the other way like an archer to fire down on him. So he has this idea, this kind of picture, this notion of God being the enemy. This week, I have lived this. I have lived this. Um, Jody is pregnant. She has crazy morning sickness. And just like this guy is saying to God, you have done this. All I've heard all week is, you did this to me. You. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that's not. And so I am living in this and everything is kind of my fault. And just like this guy is just shouting this at God. And you know, I've heard Jody say these things like these statements, which we've all said in difficult times. And she goes through this constantly day after day, just feeling so terrible, feeling so ill, um, just in such a tough, tough dilemma as she's going through this. Um, it's like she goes, I don't know how much more of this I can take. I don't know if I can keep on going. And we all have those moments, don't we? Where it just feels blocked up. It feels like there's no way through. 
in Jeremiah, and this writer, this poet, feels exactly like that. And then he says, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. This is another loaded expression which we can probably relate to in in our lives. He is like a lion in hiding. Now, if you know a lion, a lion isn't a sprinter. It's not Usain Bolt. It's not a cheetah. It's not going to see you from a mile away and chase you and catch you. It is waiting for you to screw up. A lion waits for you to screw up. Now, this writer is saying of God, he's got this image of God that it's like, God is a lion hiding in the long grass, looking, blended in, the right color, and God is just waiting for me to screw up. And as soon as I screw up, he's like a lion, he's just gonna pounce, he's gonna devour me, he's gonna rip me to shreds. And you know what? So often in life, we have this image of God, just like this poet does, that we have this idea that God is in the bushes, just waiting, like a lion, ready to devour us. And that's how he describes it. And I love that in this book, because so often with Christianity and with, um, when we look at the scriptures, we sugarcoat things and we look at things from a worldview and a point of view which is unrealistic. In those times when we go through pain, we go through hardship, that's exactly how we feel. We feel like God is against us. We feel like sometimes he's not for us. We look at our circumstance and we can feel like the poet is saying, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He had made me desolate. He bent his bow and set a target um, for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Um, literally, like the Hebrew understanding of this isn't so much like aiming for your kidneys. It's like, you know, you have that thought pe- feeling in your stomach that you feel things through, you feel ideas through. It's the idea that God puts an arrow there in, 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 the, in the essence of your being, not in your organs, but in the place of feeling and your thoughts where you think in your stomach, that kind of strange place that we feel. And so this is translated really literally in the ESV, straight to kidneys, but um, it, that's not what the writer's kind of suggesting. He doesn't really care about the kidneys. Um, I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has covered me in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Now these next few verses are so, so unbelievably key. So we can all identify this part up to here. But this is the turning point. This is the paradigm shift that the writer is about to experience. He says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers. It is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. So he starts to have hope again. Why does he start to have hope? He starts to have hope because he remembers his affliction. He remembers his pain, but he remembers his wanderings. Now, for the Hebrew people, the idea of wanderings, the notion of wandering, is all centered around this kind of Hebrew word for sin, which is shatar which means to kind of miss the mark, to walk the wrong way, to go the wrong way. So in this verse, he's going through all of this. He's saying, you did this to me, you did this to me, you did this to me. Then as he's saying, you did this to me, and he's doing this rant, and he's pointing the finger at God. He's blaming God for his situation, blaming God for his hurt, blaming God for his pain. All of a sudden, he remembers. He remembers the pain that he's gone through. And he remembers, oh, yeah, that's it. I wondered. I wondered. I didn't stay true to where I was at. I didn't stay true to the path that was laid out to me. I wondered, and as he remembers his affliction, his pain, 
and he remembers that the source of his pain is his wandering, going away from the instructions that he's been given, and the bitter taste and the wormwood, the rotting of his own flesh, the rotting within himself. You know what it's like when you do something where you stray from that path, where you, you go the wrong way, you do the wrong thing that God has for you, and you live in a way that's not great. It's like this wormwood within you. It's like the wood rotting away, and this kind of bitter taste, the gall, the gall, this bitter taste in your mouth. Um, like Russell Brand. Russell Brand is great. He did this great interview, I think, with Paxman a while back, and he said this statement. He talks about his fame and riches. It's all I ever wanted. And then he talks about it being ashes in his mouth, this bitter taste that sometimes pursuing fame for the sake of fame isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's not where it's at. Wanderings leads to wormwood and this bitter taste. And he says, my soul is con- continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. It's not just this kind of um, humility. It's actually, in the Hebrew, it's like this exhaustion. He's slumped. He's got nothing left in the tank. He's just low. He's flat out on the ground like you are when there's just no energy within you after a good Saturday night. So, he hasn't had a good Saturday night though. He's had a pretty rough one. And, um, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This literally translates as, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not cut off. That is huge for them. You see, we know about the day of the Lord. We talk about the day of the Lord and we talk about that being like the apocalypse, like the end of everything. We see the apocalypse as the end, but actually apocalypse means unveiling, revealing what's really going on, revealing what's behind the scenes, giving a new hope, a new day. And in this moment, he has this revelation as he's exhausted, as he's broken, as he's dead. And as he thinks Israel is cut off, he thinks this is the finish of their nation. This is the end of the end. This is it. That he is one of the unique, the USP of this book in the Bible over any other book is it's the only book in the Bible to be written by someone who has survived and lived through a day of the Lord. So he has lived through this huge moment of judgment. And he says here that his love is true. His love is steadfast. And because of that, we are not cut off. He says, this is not the end. And it's like he's had this moment of apocalypse, this moment of revelation, this moment of unveiling where he realizes that this judgment, all of this has come to pass for a new beginning. It's not the end of everything. It's the hope of everything turning around, of everything changing. And he says, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. He started off this chapter by saying, I'm in darkness. There isn't any light. I'm walled up. My prayers bounce back at me. I've got nothing going for me. This is the end. He remembers his affliction. He remembers his wandering. He's going the wrong way. And in this moment, the revelation comes and he realizes his love is true. I am not cut off. His mercies Uh, never come to an end. They are new every morning. So he's saying there's darkness everywhere, but guess what? There is a new morning. There is a new day coming and his mercies are new. And in this darkness, he's saying, you're tired and exhausted in your darkness. You go to sleep. You wake up refreshed. That's exactly what you do in the morning. So you wake up refreshed. You wake up renewed. You're exhausted. You're tired. You have that moment of sleep when you wake up the next day and you're like, it is a new day. I can do this. I am renewed. I have this newness of life, this newness of strength. And that is what's going down here, the picture that he's using. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear his yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth to the dust. Let um, there that they may, yet they may be hope. He's saying, let him be okay. Well, he talks about him slumped down to the ground. He says, be okay in that position. It's okay. It's not the end. Let, let him know it. Let there be hope in that position. Let him give his cheeks to the one who strikes 
He's saying, um, just like Jesus said, turning the other cheek, you know, um, in this particular reference here, it's talking about being, being um, struck and taking that discipline, knowing that sometimes discipline is a good thing that equips us and empowers us and changes us, um, that there may be hope. Let him be filled. Let him take, if there's insults thrown against you, don't just be defeated. Take that. Be able to um, live through it. For the Lord will not cast off forever. He's saying the Lord doesn't cast off forever. His mercy He's getting back to that. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Hey, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain and a man about his punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways. So he started off pointing the fingers. It's God, it's God, it's God. And now it's like, well, actually, let's take a moment to see. Is it me? Is it me? Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to the God of heaven. We have... And then here, what he does is brilliant. So he's come to this place, he's bowed low in this place of being broken and being at the end of himself. He's engaging this notion that God is merciful, that God has a new mercy every morning. Now in this place, here he starts to express and he starts to poetically say to people, here's how you can come back to God. Here's what you can say to him. Here's how you can express this repentance. We have transgressed and rebelled and you you have not forgiven. So they're starting off with this expression of their situation. Just like he has expressed it, he's inviting the people to come to this point to poetically express how they feel about their anger towards God because of their situation. We have expressed and rebelled that you have not forgiven. You have wrapped us with your anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself the cloud so that your prayer can pass through so that no prayer could pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come to us. Devastation, destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without seeing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of my daughter of the city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and have cast, they have cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called upon you. You said, do not be afraid. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O God. Judge me. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me, the lips, the thoughts of my assailants. They're against me all day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of the taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them under your heavens, O Lord. There is this huge shift that we've talked about from the beginning of this series, that he goes from a theology of pain, expressing his pain. The beauty in this is that so often, that is exactly what I was thinking. So often in, in Christianity and church, we have to have this way of expressing our pain and our hurt. Sometimes when someone comes to you and they're talking about their life, it's almost as if they're saying like, um, you're going through this pain, you're going through this hurt, but they don't really allow anyone ex- room to express themselves. If anyone's angry about God, people look at them as if like, um, like, what's wrong with you? But actually sometimes when people go through stuff, sometimes when they nurse their wife all the way to death, 
they get messed up, they go through pain, they go through hurt, and it's difficult. And we kind of want to close down their expression to be this perfect kind of, everyone to be a Job, and everyone to say like, the God give, God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But actually sometimes it's, you did this to me. You brought me to this place. I'm in a dark place right now and I'm praying and it seems like there's no light and there's no way through this. You have walled me in on every side. When we don't allow people that space, sometimes they leave church hurt and broken just because we didn't create the room for them to say and to let it out. God is big enough. God is not like me. It's not like if someone's saying all this, God is cowering away, broken, hiding in the corner. Oh no, someone didn't like how their life's panning out. He's big. He's big enough. And as we create the room for them to express their pain, there comes a moment as they explore their pain and they get all their grief out. They come to the point, hold on a second, I've remembered my affliction. Now I remember my wandering. And as they remember their wandering, they get exhausted. Everything comes out and there's this collapse. And at this collapse, we find ourselves at the feet of a God who is merciful, a God who is loving, a God whose mercy is new every single morning and then here they start to express themselves going through that pain coming round to repentance and coming round to a new hope for a new day a new day when we look at this particular book when we look at this passage we have to remember their context their context is their culture their society everything they've ever loved about their lives is gone they're stripped away of everything they no longer have their temple. They no longer have their way of life. They've been taken as slaves to a foreign land where they are no longer allowed to express themselves. They're given new names and new, new identity. They're broken of everything that they have in common. They're separated from one another and they just feel there's only darkness and they feel like they're cut off. They feel this is the end of Israel. We can see today Israel's still going as a nation and Israel has been restored through each of these days of the Lord and judgment they've had in history. They're brought right back around. And from that we can learn no matter what we go through, no matter what we face, no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, and no matter if we feel like it's bleak and our prayers are not being heard, we can know His mercy comes in the morning. And just as true as there is darkness in the night, as there is absence of light, there is a new day dawning that is going to rise up. And just as you're exhausted right now in the pain of your situation, there is a new day coming where you will be energized and you will experience the mercy of the Lord, afresh and anew. And so in the midst of a book, which is probably the greatest suffering in Israel's, Israel's history, that and probably the Holocaust, greater than even what they went through in Egypt, their suffering in this book. In these five poems, we can hear their hurt, their anger, their despair, and we can connect it to our own lives. And we can know that the God who did not cut them off is a God who will not cut us off that we are his children and that he loves us. But we need to come and remember exactly. We need to remember mummy. We need to remember our pain. We need to remember our wanderings that we may experience restoration. I'm going to pray for us. And then that will be it for this week. Father, I thank you so much that you are a big God and that you can take our criticism, our pain, and our venting. That we can talk to you honestly. You know our hearts anyway. So not coming to you and being true about our situation and trying to put on this mask is a facade, and you are never interested in a facade. Why add lying to the list of sins to go with our situation? Father, 
may we start to explore our relationship with you deeper where we can come and say to you exactly what we are thinking, exactly what we're feeling about our situation and about you. Because in every relationship, a healthy relationship says what it feels, says what it thinks. May we be honest with you with our hurts, with our pains, with our failures, with our fears for the future. Just like Jeremiah was in this awesome book, Ika, How, Lamentations, whatever you want to call it. We pray, Father God, that as we explore our own pain and affliction, we would encounter and remember our wanderings and our straying that caused this problem, that we may come to know your restoration, your healing, and your salvation within our lives. Father God, may we be people that create space for those we meet to share their pains and hurts with us, that we do not close them down because we don't think the way they're expressing their pain is appropriate or Christian. May we, Father, be people who create space that allow the pain and the hurt to be there, that people would then remember their wanderings and encounter the restoration that you bring, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that though we may be tired today, your mercy is new in the morning and that you are for us and you are with us. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you transform us from the inside out? May we this week, if we have underlying issues and tensions, bring them before your throne and may they be dealt with, Lord. May we remember our affliction, our pain. May we remember our wanderings. And may we know and encounter your mercy in a new, powerful, fresh way. Today and the rest of this week, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.